Thanks for tuning into the Bridge Church Podcast. Our hope for you is that you would feel the welcome home of Christ wherever you're listening from today. We pray that this message encourages you in your faith journey to be with Jesus and become like him for the sake of the world. Let's dive in. Well, good morning, everybody. It's great to be with you as we continue on our study through the book of Jonah. I'd also like to welcome those of you at our Columbia campus and at the Murray County Jail. Great having you guys with us as well. And uh, for any of you that are watching online, thanks for, thanks for tuning in. We're going to be looking at Jonah chapter 3, verses 1 to 10. So we're in part 3 of our four-part series. So if you'd like to follow along in your Bibles, you can turn there or swipe. And uh, by the way, if you're a dad, happy Father's Day. When I was a kid, I loved watching Saturday morning cartoons. And there was always this tension between the good guy and the bad guy. Uh, do you remember the antagonism between the Roadrunner and Coyote? Right? Uh, what about Bugs Bunny and Elmer Fudd? He never could quite get Bugs. Or Fred Flintstone and his neighbor Loud Rock. They're always kind of duking it out in the, in the yard. Or the epic dogfights between Snoopy and his arch enemy, the Red Baron. Those were the good old days. Uh, and of course, we can't forget about our pastor Ian Simpkins and his ongoing angst for the band Nickelback. <laughs> We all know that Ian secretly is a fanboy, and so uh, they're going to actually be here in concert at the Bridgestone Arena August 1st. So here's what I think we should do. We should all chip in, buy Ian tickets and backstage passes, because I know that he would just love hanging with the boys after, uh, after that. So now, if there's any pushback or blowback because of this, uh, just text your email messages to Corey Shoemate, and he'll handle all the conflict there. <laughs> so over the last uh, couple weeks, as I've been studying the book of Jonah, I've been reminded of this tension between Jonah and the Ninevites. For some reason, Jonah hated these people. So when God taps him on the shoulder back in chapter one and says, Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh and share with them this message of repentance and my love, Jonah's like, nope, that ain't gonna happen. And he goes in co the complete opposite direction. And the irony is that Jonah, as a prophet of God, was supposed to represent God to the people. Mostly he did this with the Israelites, but on this rare occasion, God sends him to the Assyrians, who clearly Jonah considered to be his enemies. Why would God do that? Why would God select Jonah to go to Nineveh? I mean, he could have chosen Amos or Hosea. They were contemporaries of Jonah. Well, as I thought about this, I wonder if the reason was because Jonah needed to learn that God loves everyone, even his enemies. And if Jonah was going to represent God rightly, he would need to learn how to do that too. And this is an important lesson for us as well, because God has called us as the body of Christ in this increasingly hostile world towards Christianity to love our enemies too. Think about it. Maybe we are most like God when we love our enemies. Now, you may be thinking, well, Ken, I, I really don't have any enemies. I mean, you know, because typically we think about enemies as the people that are aggressively out to get us or to take our position or to slander us in some way. But the way God designed our brains to work is that anytime someone hurts you or hurts your feelings, including your kids, your spouse, your friend, parents, 
coworkers, or neighbor, it creates a stress response in the brain that puts you in enemy mode. This just happened to me the other day. My wife Susan said something in a way that hurt my feelings, which is unusual because that's usually my job in the, in the house. And uh, I took it like a man and got a little defensive and marched up to my office and closed the door. So I'm sitting there pouting like my four-year-old grandson when I get a text from a friend of mine who lives in California. And he said this, Ken, I wanted to send you a blessing today as you lead your wife, daughters, and grandchildren in Christ. I bless you, Ken, with the courage and strength to love on your family through the power of the Holy Spirit that brings forth patience and kindness, gentleness, humility, and a surrendered heart to Christ with passion that surpasses all others. And I sat there thinking, stupid friend. <laughs> and then I went and started doing the repair work. My point is the enemy that you may need to love might be sitting next to you. So how do we become the kind of people that love our enemies when the need arises? Well, to start with, it'll help to see what, what that even looks like. And that's what God shows us here in Jonah chapter three, verses one to 10. God reveals through three expressions of his love how we can love our enemies. So the first one is this, expression number one is God's love is forgiving. Verses one to two. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. I love that. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message that I give you. God is the God of the second chance. That's good news, right? And of the third, fourth, fifth, I mean, I need six, seven, and eight, right? I mean, there is no limit to God's willingness to forgive. How many of you have ever needed a second chance? Yeah, guys, it's not good to lie in church, okay? <laughs> How many of you have needed a second chance within the last 24 hours? How about when you're driving to church this morning? Yeah. The truth is, we all need a do-over, and Jonah is no exception. He disobeys God's first command to go to Nineveh. God disciplines him by putting him in the belly of a great fish for three days and three nights, during which Jonah cries out to the Lord. God responds not with anger, but with forgiveness. God wants to forgive the Ninevites, but he starts with Jonah. God gives Jonah a fresh glimpse of his love by forgiving his sin and giving him a second chance. And I know all about second chances. 39 years ago, God gave me one too. After the woman that I was living with had an abortion, I realized the horrible consequences of my sin and the guilt and the shame and the condemnation just washed over me like a flood. I remember the day after it all happened. I fell on my knees and I cried out to God and I asked him for his mercy and for his forgiveness. And God forgave me. And so today I'm standing before you simply as a trophy of God's grace. And like Jonah, God gave me a second chance and he'll give you a second chance too. Friends, there is nothing, however horrifying, that you have done that God will not forgive. And your sin is not the exception to God's grace. If you cry out to the Lord with a broken and repentant heart, he promises to forgive you. Look at 1 John 1, 9. 
John says, if we confess our sins, that he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. I I want you to notice the order here. If we confess, then what happens? God forgives. Now, maybe you're thinking, well, Ken, I don't deserve God's forgiveness. Yeah, I've heard that one too, uh, actually a lot. And the truth is, you're right, 100%. No one deserves God's forgiveness. And yet, look again at what John says. God's forgiveness is the result of his character, that he is faithful and just. It has nothing to do with whether you and I deserve it or not. It's about him. And one thing that helps me forgive those when they hurt me is to remember all the times that God has forgiven me. Paul reminds us in Ephesians 4, 32, to be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. So the first expression of God's love is forgiveness. We must forgive those who hurt us. Expression number two is God's love is patient. Verses three and four. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and he went to Nineveh. Now notice it doesn't say that he went to Nineveh, he had a great attitude, but at least he went this time, right? That's that's progress. Now Jonah was, or now Nineveh was a very important city. A visit required three days. And on the first day, Jonah started into the city, he proclaimed... 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. Now, the word important here refers to the size of Nineveh. But as great as the city was in size, its people were guilty of an even greater sin. Back in chapter 1, verse 2, God refers to the wickedness of the people of Nineveh coming before him. And as we have learned over the last couple of weeks, these people were bad news. In fact, if you drop down to verse 8, the king of Nineveh even refers to his people as evil and violent. The Assyrians were barbaric in war. They tortured their victims. They showed no mercy even to women and children. And yet, God was patient with them. The book of Nahum in the Old Testament is all about the future destruction of Nineveh. So Nahum was prophesying that one day Nineveh was gonna be completely wiped out. A hundred years before Jonah even shows up. Jonah shows up, preaches this message of repentance. The people repent, didn't last very long because 33 years later they went back and actually sacked Jerusalem. But here's what I find interesting. It wasn't for another 150 years until God brought the complete destruction of Nineveh. God waited 250 years from the beginning of Nahum's prophecy to the actual fall of Nineveh for them to repent. God has a very, very long fuse when dealing with sin. Judgment is never God's first response, but is always his last resort. So why is God so patient? Well, Paul gives us the answer in 1 Timothy 2.4. It's because God wants all men. He wants everyone to be saved. Now, we know that not everyone will be saved because not everyone will actually receive the forgiveness that is available to them in Christ, but that's the heart of God, that they would be. God is as patient with those 
who do believe as he is with those who don't. And yet, even though Jonah had had a recent experience with God's patience for his own sin, he was still reluctant to share that message with the Assyrians. And we see his reluctance in the words of his sermon. We have the whole text right there in verses 3 and 4. 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. And as I read that, I'm like, really? That's all you got, Jonah? That's your big takeaway from your encounter with God's forgiveness for your sin. That's all you took away from the storm at sea and living in the belly of a great fish for three days and three nights? I mean, this guy is stubborn. This is probably the worst sermon ever preached. It was all burned without the turn, right? But sometimes the right behavior precedes the right attitude. It reminds me of the story of this little boy who was riding in the car with his dad and he wanted to stand up on the front seat. And the dad kept asking him to sit down and finally in exasperation he said, son, sit down and put on your seatbelt. So this little boy sits down defiantly and puts his seatbelt on and crosses his arms and says to his dad, I may be sitting down on the outside, but I'm standing up on the inside. <laughs> I gotta admit, I'm kind of guilty of that behavior at times too. And yet, despite Jonah's sermon, the Ninevites repent. Look at verses 5 to 9. The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. Sackcloth is like burlap. It's not very comfortable. You're not going to find it at Nordstrom's. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. And then he issued a proclamation in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. Now you gotta admit, the response to this was pretty amazing. An eight word sermon brings about national repentance. Now some historians have suggested that, well the, re the, the Assyrians had kind of been prepared for this, that they had experienced two different plagues that wiped out a bunch of people. They had also experienced, because, and we know this from the dating, is that they had a full solar eclipse. And so if you didn't understand what was going on there, that would have been pretty freaky. And then there was all of this infighting uh, and upheaval going on in the inner relationships and the political system there in Nineveh. And so when this kind of crazy guy comes walking through town with torn clothes, bleached white skin, and smelling like fish bile, shouting at the top of his lungs, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned, the people drop to their knees and repent. It just reminds me that God can use anything to soften hard hearts to respond to his message. And maybe that's you here today. Maybe that's those of you that are listening in. Maybe some of the recent events that are going on in your life is God's desire for you to come home to him. And so he uses anything. So the first two glimpses of God's love we see here in this passage is number one, God's love is forgiving. Number two, God's love is patient. And then number three, God's love is compassionate. Verse 10. 
When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction that he had threatened. God is the God of all compassion. In fact, he revealed himself to Moses in Exodus 34 saying this, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. And over and over again, it's like this golden thread that runs through the scriptures. We see the compassion of God. We see it in him saving Noah and his family. We see it saving Lot and his family from the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. We see it with the Israelites as Moses was leading them through the wilderness and God provided for them a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud and he provided sandals for that their sandals wouldn't wear out and water to drink and food to eat. God provided all of that out of his compassion. Out of compassion, Jesus became a man and walked among us. It was compassion that moved Jesus to make the blind see and the lame to walk and the deaf to hear. It was out of compassion that Jesus had for the crowds because they were, they were sheep, like sheep without a shepherd. And it was ultimately compassion that sent Jesus to the cross to die in our place to pay the price for our sin. God is the God of compassion. The Lord has compassion for all people everywhere. There has never been or ever will be one exception to this rule because compassion is an aspect of God's character that will never change. And Jonah knew that if he preached a sermon and offered God's forgiveness and love to the Assyrian people that they would repent and he didn't want that. And yet that's what God called him to do. And it's what God calls us to do as well. We as followers of Christ are called to love our enemies. Now we know better what that looks like. Let's talk for a minute about how we can actually do that. How do we become the kind of people that will love our enemies when the need arises? Friends, this isn't something that we can just white knuckle when we're in the moment. It's something that we need to actually train for and essentially practice in our lives. Jesus in Matthew 5, gives us very clear instructions here. Look what he says. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be sons of your father in heaven. We see two instructions here. Instruction number one is to love your enemies. This is not a suggestion, it's actually a command in the Greek. To love my enemy is to desire God's best for them. Love moves us towards establishing a relational connection and it promotes the desire to repair and to reconcile. Now sometimes we can't do that because it takes two parties, but God wants us to at least try. Love makes the relationship more important than the problem. Now, I hadn't planned on sharing the story with you, but I'm going to go ahead and do it anyway. So this is free. This didn't, not covered in the cost of admission today. Uh, a few weeks ago, my wife Susan and I were walking our dog, and she, the dog decided to relieve herself on uh, one of our neighbor's lawns. And 
you know, she's a little Maltese poodle, right? Don't judge me. But I mean, she's just this little thing, right? I mean, we're talking Tootsie Roll size poops here. I mean, we've already talked about farts. We might as well talk about poop, right? I mean, let's just... And so before I could actually stop her, right, the guy from the house comes marching out and he just lights me up. This was not my finest moment. I did not respond to him and say, oh, hi, I'd like to introduce myself to you. My name is Ken. I'm a pastor uh, in the area. And yeah, no, that's not what happened. We had an extremely heated exchange right there on his front lawn to such an extent that Susan just started walking home. Well, a couple of days ago, I'm at our community mailbox, and I'm getting out of the, my truck, and I see, oh my gosh, it's that neighbor. Now, did I take advantage of the opportunity and go up and say, hey man, I'm really sorry, a couple of weeks ago, I don't know if you remember, but you and I had a kind of heated exchange about my dog pooping on your lawn? No, that's not what I did. I just kind of put my hat down and went to the mailbox and opened it up, and as I was getting back in the truck, I just felt the Lord saying, son, you missed an opportunity there. I'm like, dang it. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to commit to you that when the opportunity presents itself, I'm going to go to this guy and I'm going to apologize. And I'm going to own my part of it. Every pastor in this church is a hot mess in reality. We're struggling and doing the best we can to you guys. And man, there's moments when we get this right, and there are moments when we get it terribly wrong. And that was one of them for me. But Jesus wants us to love people like that. Instruction number two, Jesus says to pray for your enemies. Again, the, the Greek term here is that prayer is a command. And both love and prayer are actually in the present tense, which means that it's an ongoing, continual action. In, in other words, to love and to pray for our enemies is not a one-time thing. It's an ongoing, continual process. Why? Because love and prayer move us towards unity. And unity is a big deal to God, especially in his family. Unity is the gold standard for our relationships with each other as brothers and sisters in Christ and in our witness to a watching world. In John 17, Jesus prays that we would be one in the same way that he and the Father are one. And here's one of the most amazing uh, texts in all of Scripture where Jesus says that we are now in him and he is now in us giving us the will and the desire even to love our enemies. So I want to give you an opportunity this morning to just kind of put this into practice. And some of you may be sitting there kind of with arms crossed and you're going, nope, don't go there. But I want to invite you into an opportunity. So I want to just ask, just close your eyes for just a second. And I want you to think about the person and their name that you are at odds with right now. It could be a spouse, it could be a neighbor. Uh, maybe it's somebody at work. Maybe it's a former spouse or a friend, extended family. What's their name? Okay, now I want you to look up here for a minute. I'm sorry 
for the hurt they've caused you. I really am. But here's what I know, that if you hold on to that anger over time, it's gonna return to resentment and then bitterness and then hatred and then it's gonna ultimately get act out in a way of revenge. This is the path of your own destruction and it'll just suck the life out of you. Many times it's easier to feel angry than sad because anger is kind of an empowering emotion where the, the, the sadness from the hurt is, is, is kind of vulnerable and so we tend to push that away and go with the anger. But that's not God's way. That's not what he's done for us and that's not what he has called us to do with others. So I wanna lead you in a very simple prayer. And this prayer is not gonna fix everything, but it's gonna start moving you in that direction. So would you just say, would you say, Lord, I pray for, and then just say their name. They hurt me and I am so angry about it. But I want to let go of that anger I want to be like you. I want to love those who have hurt me. So Lord, I'm taking the first step toward that today. And I pray that you will bless them. I want you to just say their name as well. I want you to bless them. Bring all that is good in their life today. Help them to sense your presence and experience your love. In Jesus' name. Now, I wanna invite you into what I'm calling the 14-day Love Your Enemies Challenge. It's gonna become the next thing, truly. Here's the first thing I'd like to invite you to do. Go and find a trusted friend and tell them that you've been harboring anger and bitterness in your heart. Now, why is this important? Because it, it's you taking responsibility for what's going on inside of you and not blaming the other person. Two, I want you to pray for that person every day for the next 14 days as the Lord brings them to mind. Just pray something very simple. Ask the Lord to bless them. Ask the Lord to be with them, to reveal himself to them, that they may know his love for them. And then three, by next Sunday, I'd like to invite you to have texted them if you can, that's possible, and just let them know that you've been praying for them. You don't have to go into a bunch of details. Just say, hey, just want you to know the Lord brought you to mind today and I was praying for you. I just pray God's blessing in your life. If you do this for 14 days, something's gonna change. Someone is gonna change and that someone simply may be you. Because God's love and prayer unleashes the grace of God that just changes people. When you love your enemies and pray for them, it will change you. And very often, it will change them too. Thanks so much for joining us. And for those of you who support our mission, thank you for your joyful generosity. It's because you give that we're able to see lives changed forever by the gospel. 
You can click the link in the description of this episode to give now or go to bridge.tv for more information about our church. We believe the gospel is good news worth sharing. So if you enjoyed this podcast, feel free to subscribe and share this episode with family and friends on social media. You can also tag us at BridgeChurchTN. Thanks again for listening.